welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tatefield. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and final year law students who are very passionate about feminism and the law. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our interview with Professor Abby Smith. The vast majority of rape cases, unfortunately, don't get prosecuted. So that's not my fault as a criminal defense lawyer. That's not and I would argue that's not on account of my conduct in trial. Um, that's frankly because of law enforcement um, and the ways in which law enforcement puts women off. Um, and it's it's because I think of how intimidating the system is writ large. But you know, there's some things we could do about that. It seems to me. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm not at all saying that that we are perfect at at prosecuting and holding accountable um, sex crimes. Um, but I do think that, especially in the United States, punishment is too harsh. It's just too harsh. It's way harsher than what currently exists in Canada, France, the UK, in our in the, in our like-minded democratic countries, and yeah. that. And that people, look, people grow and change. And you know, one of the most poignant things I ever heard was a testimony at a resentencing hearing from somebody who was a formerly incarcerated person and who had recently re-entered society. And it was on behalf of a friend of his who he came to know and basically grew up with in prison who had spent 34 years in prison, 34 years from when he was a young man. Nobody could say that's a short period of time in prison. His crime, the guy who was being resentenced, his crime was bad. It was armed rape. It was armed rape in the context of drug wars and payback. And I'm not minimizing the crime at all, but 34 years ago, the crime was committed and the man who was convicted had completely changed himself in prison. He was self-educated. He read feminist theory. He read feminist poetry. He was a poet himself now. He totally understood from the perspective of African-American society and families and women, the role he had played and what he did. He was the kind of person everybody looked up to. He had this kind of quiet dignity. I got to know him because the Georgetown clinic that I direct uh, teaches research and writing at a couple of maximum security prisons in Maryland. And he was the facilitator on the inside of this particular program. And yeah, his resentencing consisted of a bunch of cross-examinations by a woman prosecutor of a certain generation who focused on the crime. Every witness who came forward to testify to the very good character and the complete rehabilitation of this man um, was cross-examined. Well, this was a rape case, an armed rape case. The, The victim feared for her life. She's serving a life sentence. Why shouldn't the defendant serve a life sentence? And I was a character witness and I tried to push back and I said, I... I hope she's not serving a life sentence. She declined to come and testify or to prepare a victim impact statement. She told a defense investigator that she she thought he had served enough time. And so hopefully she was resilient. People can be incredibly resilient. I don't think we should paint victims of crime as all the same any more than we should paint defendants all the same. And I said, I'm hoping that she found a way to move on with her life. I hope she got good counseling and the prosecutor was having none of it um, and got really annoyed with me and said, have you ever represented anybody who's been raped? And I said, 
Of course, I've been a criminal defense lawyer for more than 30 years. A disproportionate number of the women I represent have been the victims of both physical and sexual violence. If you spend any time in a women's prison, disproportionate numbers of those women have suffered violence, both sexual and physical, at the hands of boyfriends and family members. I said I also have represented a fair number of women in battered women's self-defense cases where women who've experienced battering have either killed or assaulted abusive partners. I said, so yes, and I would not paint all of those women as the same. Well, you know, I made no headway, but uh, this guy who testified after me, who had been incarcerated for many years was, and who came to, to speak about his good friend in the prison was cross-examined the same way and then he stopped. And he looked at the judge and said, your honor, the crime doesn't change. The person changes. And it was incredibly eloquent. You could hear a pin drop. But I also have to tell you, I think that's a feminist understanding. People can change. People can be educated. People can understand more the role they play in keeping the systems the way they are. I mean, this is a guy who changed. Anyhow, I, I share that story just because the prosecutor was out of central casting. She was a carceral feminist prosecutor. There just wasn't enough time in the world that this man needed to serve for a crime that she despised and that we can all despise the crime. But I don't know, you know, people change. I think, I think that man in prison would do a very good job of going around talking about his crime and what, what fueled it and the regret he has as a man. Anyhow, that's a long story. Sorry for telling it. No, that's that's a, a really interesting story. And I think um, given that often like, and, like prison abolitionist activists often talk about the harshness of the prison system. So it's really interesting that in this particular instance, this man was completely um, rehabilitated. Um, but I guess continuing with the theme then of like the harshness of the carceral system. Um, later in your article, um, when you're discussing carceral fe feminism, you write, and I'm direct quoting the article here, regards increased policing, prosecution, and imprisonment as the primary solution to violence against women. So do you think that carceral feminism is a sustainable solution to violence against women? And I suppose as a second part of that question, what do you think would be a better solution? So no, I am harshly critical of carceral feminism. And I'm because they're in lockstep with the foolishness um, and brutality of America's approach to criminal offending, that every social problem is addressed with prison. Um, you know, mental health problems, drug and alcohol abuse, um, impoverishment, family dysfunction and violence. These are really vexing social problems that need a complicated solution. We don't solve violence against women when we lock up individuals. We don't. We just banish individuals without really addressing the kind of core problems. The, you know, the scholarship that I like best um, is coming from feminists 
who are prison abolitionists who take a critical eye. My colleague, Allegra McLeod, has written about um, the institutions that perpetuate violence against women most and always have and need to be taken down. I mean, she talks about the church, the military, our educational system, and the family. You know, I think her work is is brilliant and astute. Um, violence against women is inseparable from the ethos of the military. And, you know, God knows, no pun intended, you know, in the Catholic Church, you know, we've learned about how abuse is perpetuated. It's deeply hierarchical and there's systems of secrecy that support it. Frankly, policing, you know, more and more we're learning about not just police brutality toward unarmed black and brown people, but the way police, um, you know, often sexually abuse poor women because they have the power to, that's another institution. So I don't know, I, I you know, like an analysis that attacks the institutions that then filter down into society. Um, you know, what do I think is better? I, I you know, I, I, I know I could be caricatured as a, you know, kind of old fashioned violin playing liberal, but I think we need more education and rehabilitation and understanding about violence and what causes violence. And one of the reasons I, th I think it's sort of pathetic that in 2023, all we can think about is putting people in cages is that we really know something about violence. Um, my, my academic colleagues in the social sciences have done amazing work on the causes of violence and the perpetuation of violence, um, especially in, in families. And some of my favorite work includes an understanding of what causes people to commit especially extreme violence. And there is a kind of gendered understanding. Um, and in short form, it's that men commit acts of violence when they are attempting to exercise control. Women commit acts of violence when they are out of control. I think that's a really brilliant kind of deep understanding. And it fits with my anecdotal understanding after you know several decades of criminal defense practice. So what do you do with that kind of an understanding? How do you get at that? Um, you know, I, I think we're smart enough to figure it out. I do not have all the answers, but I think using some of the literature, some of the research on, on violence would be helpful. Um, I also think that gender violence is unique. It's different from other form, from other hate crime and sometimes gets lumped in to hate crimes that are, you know, based on ethnic bias or racial bias or disability bias or anti-gay or trans violence. I think we, we can get at those things. I think there is some education to be done. I have represented people who are accused of, of hate crimes. You know, sometimes I, I you know, I, I find the crime outrageous. You know, by the way, you can be a criminal defense lawyer and hate the crime. You don't, you know, you don't become a criminal defense lawyer because you love rape and murder. That is not why I'm a criminal defense lawyer. 
frankly, if if the bulk of what I did as a criminal defense lawyer was defend people accused of rape, I would not be a very happy criminal defense lawyer. Um, but that's not the bulk of what I do. But you know, that having been said, I don't think that gender-related bias fits squarely within those other hate crimes categories. And I think women who get caught up in the domestic violence part of criminal court understand what I'm talking about and are kind of on my team. They don't always want their partners, no matter how abusive their partners are, to be in jail. They want their partners to stop drinking or using drugs. They want their partners to get vocational training or get a job. They want some help in, in changing the behavior of their partners. Um, so they're not always calling for incarceration. I mean, it, it's, you know, a little bit like, you know, kicking the next person down on the totem pole when you're feeling defeated. Um, it's ugly. I, I don't really understand why people beat up the people they love or the people they've pledged to <laughs> support. Um, but there's a dynamic sometimes that that happens that I would like to get at that's more complicated. I mean, I think that's why a number of jurisdictions are approaching domestic violence in a less punitive way, at least are giving those cases a chance. They're giving the defendants a chance to kind of learn um, to change behavior. They, you know, they go through so-called anger management classes. Now, you know, I'm a little skeptical. Some of those courts, you know, do it. They try to take a 12-step approach um, to violence, but it's often not, it's not, I guess, professional. I don't mean to sound like an elitist, but, you know, I think those programs need to be run by people who are mental health professionals and not by probation departments to try to kind of get at why violence is such an instinct in certain circumstances instead of other instincts and kind of relearning. And a lot of it is hardwired from being raised in families where young people see violence like that. So this is a long way around of saying, you know, I think that these are public health problems and social problems, and we need a public health way of addressing family violence, not, not simply incarcerating our way out of it. Because I don't think incarceration has helped. You know, we currently lock up 2 million people, hasn't helped. And, you know, domestic violence was on the rise during COVID. Why? Because people were stuck in their houses. Why do people beat people up who they love in their houses? I, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know. Um, but I think we are smarter than simply putting people in cages. I think we should be about working with families and helping to save families if we can of all sorts. You know, I don't just mean the traditional cisgendered heterosexual nuclear family unit. I mean, when people love each other and they get together because increasingly, you know, the cases of domestic violence include all different kinds of families. Yeah, thank you for that. And I completely agree. I think it's such a difficult um, kind of answer, question to answer and there's no, no right or wrong um, solution in that sense. Um, so still focusing on your article in another part of it, um, you also talk about the fact that in 98% of alleged rape cases, the assailant goes free. And you also emphasise that defence lawyers, and I quote, are not the initial stumbling block for rape complainants. 
So what is the main um, stumbling block in your opinion? And how do we ensure as a society that alleged rapists go through the court process in a similar way that they would for other crimes? So I think in a word, cops, there are too many police departments that still don't know how to effectively prosecute rape cases. And you need to work closely with the person um, who's the alleged victim. And, and here's the thing about both alleged victims and defendants. And my dearest friend in the world um, has been very active in um, victims' rights and in representing alleged victims in domestic violence cases in particular. Um, she was a career poverty lawyer and tended to represent black and brown women who were poor, who were caught up in the civil system. I don't have any problem with lawyers for alleged victims. I, I think I believe in lawyers. I believe in good lawyers. And I think it's useful for people to have representation. Um, but victims, alleged victims and defendants are never perfect. My friends who represent complaining witnesses in domestic violence cases or rape cases will tell you the same thing. The people they represent, they're not perfect. The people I represent, not perfect. I think too many members of law enforcement um, have an image of the truth-telling innocent rape victim that too many real-life examples are not exactly in lockstep with. Um, you know, women allege rape who are drug users sometimes, who are sex workers sometimes, usually in combination with being drug users, um, who just don't present as perfect angels. And I think, I think too many members of law enforcement are disparaging and dismissive um, if the person that comes before them isn't perfect. So I think the first obstacle is the police. Um, I think prosecutors sometimes are no better. It depends on the prosecutorial agency and, um, and the lawyers who prosecute those cases. So I think those are the initial stumbling blocks. I, I do think um, that the system writ large poses a problem that, that women imagine, oh no, there's gonna be a public beating because once my allegation hits the airwaves, people are going to pile on and there are powerful forces that will make me feel bad, you know, kind of doubly bad. And, you know, I still think as a matter of public opinion, you know, there's a fear that, that there's that shame and rape go hand in hand, that somehow there's a view that being raped is shameful. And we've seen that, that certainly is, is true in some countries. Um, but you know, in the United States and in Western countries, it's still true, but kind of in a different way um, that there's a shameful thing in having somebody sexually assault you. So there's a, you know, I, I think there's that and it's, it's there's fear and shame, not a good combination for pursuing a criminal prosecution. So there's all those things. 
But my point is just the criminal defense lawyer arrives kind of late in the process. You know, it can't, it can't be that we're the people to blame. Now, is it true that cross-examination can sometimes be painful? Yes, it is. And I don't want to make light of that. Um, a good cross-examination, especially at a preliminary hearing, which a number of jurisdictions in the United States include preliminary hearings where lawyers cross-examine um, alleged rape victims. And this happens in military tribunals as well. The cross-examination is very probing and can feel insulting. And I'm honest about that when I talk about criminal defense lawyering. It needs to be, though. It needs to be so that the criminal defense lawyer has a sense of the case. Is this a case that should go to trial or is this a case that ought to be pled out because the complaining witness is a very good witness? Um, it's, you know, that kind of cross-examination is an opportunity to explore what a viable defense theory may be. But as I said before, it, it can't just be my responsibility. Any prosecutor worth his or her salt will prepare their witness to withstand such a cross-examination. Um, so, I, you know, I think, and I think the system also is, is foreign and prosecutors don't do a good job of introducing an alleged victim to what the system will look like. Preparation goes a really far away in these cases. I mean, any good any good criminal defense lawyer is going to prepare a client or a defense witness for what it's like to testify and and kind of put them through it as practice. Prosecutors, meanwhile, need to do the same thing for their alleged victims, so that by the time they end up in court, they know what it looks like. They've been through it. They're ready. Yeah, absolutely. That's um that's incredibly important. Um, you know, the whole preparation and you know preparing witnesses is incredibly important to the process. Um, as a sort of concluding question, I suppose, what is one piece of advice you would like to give to our listeners who are perhaps aspiring lawyers or maybe already practicing about being a feminist and a criminal defense lawyer? Well, so I am a very happy feminist criminal defense lawyer. I love my work. It's a perfect fit for me. You know, I, I I go to work every day and I feel like I'm fighting the good fight to at least make a dent in an insatiable and brutal system. And some of my favorite lawyers are people who share my identity, who are other feminist criminal defense lawyers. We're kind of a cool club. So if you as a law student or a young lawyer or somebody who's been practicing law for a while, but isn't a very happy lawyer, wants to have an opportunity to take on the system at its most brutal, its most violent, then I would invite you um, to try on criminal defense for size. We live in a time, especially in the US, when our criminal legal system is shameful. We put way too many people in cages. We devastate entire communities and families. As a criminal defense lawyer, you have a chance to do on the inside what our allies um, are doing on the outside. Our allies in Black Lives Matter, in prison abolition, uh, in the restorative justice movement. And what those folks are trying to do on the outside to change the system, we can at least try to stop the bleeding a little bit on the inside. Um, so I would say to you, you, any of you all who care about feminism, who care about racism, consider a career in criminal defense. It's a really good fit. Thank you. That's a fantastic piece of advice. 
Um, and finally, if our listeners would want to find out more about your research or feminist criminal defence um, more generally, where could they do so, please? Well, I don't want to be self-promoting, but, you know, you can find the stuff that I've written and really the body of my my work at its heart is an explication of feminist criminal defense lawyering. Um, a good place to start is a book I wrote called Case of a Lifetime. Um, and it's a piece of narrative nonfiction about a woman I represented starting when I was a law student starting when I was a second year law student who went on to serve 28 and a half years in prison for a crime I strongly and deeply believe she did not commit. And I um, went on to represent her after I was a public defender for a bunch of years. My hands were full then with my own cases, but um, her case kind of haunted me and I, I went back and represented her. Um, and there's a lot of discussion of all of the topics that, that you and I have discussed today in that book. And I think it's a nice introduction to what it means to be a, a lawyer, a woman, to kind of fight a battle in the criminal legal system. It's a book about an innocent person, so there's a particular spin that way. I make plain that mostly criminal defense lawyers do not represent the innocent, thank goodness, um, because that's a, a grueling experience I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Not that it's so different from representing the guilty, I I feel the same way when I'm representing somebody who's guilty at trial because I'm up against the very same forces and I feel like I'm, I'm fighting on behalf of an individual's dignity and humanity. Um, I wrote another book a couple of years ago called Guilty People. Unfortunately, it came out right when the, when the pandemic hit, which is not really when you want to have a book be released, but that's kind of a nice companion piece to the first book. It digs around again in... Um, kind of nonfiction storytelling, um, some of the, the, the cases and clients um, I've, I've had, and there's a chapter. So there's, there, are, there are five chapters. Chapter one is petty criminals. Chapter two is ordinary, fellow, ordinary felons. Chapter three is rapists. Chapter four is murderers. And chapter five is called guilty clients, guilty lawyers, and digs around the kind of motivations of criminal defense lawyers. But there's an entire chapter that's devoted to sexual assault. Um, that has that kind of follows one story in particular, but digs around and um, is very candid and tries to answer some of the hard questions about what it feels like to represent people who commit crimes that are, you know, violent and painful and damaging um, and kind of how you, I work my way through all that. So those would be a couple of good ways to kind of try on my thinking for size. I'm also an erstwhile cartoonist and the book Guilty People has an original cartoon by me in every chapter. So that's the little reward for making your way through um, some hard questions. And look, you can tell, I, I believe in asking hard questions and kind of facing them head on. This is not easy work. I don't think people are drawn to criminal defense because it's an easy gig. I think we're drawn because it's fascinating and challenging and important and ultimately deeply gratifying. But I think you have to ask and answer for yourself some of the hard questions because they're going to come up. And I don't believe in compartmentalizing. I believe you should be honest with yourself. And when you have a really hard case, when you come back to the office after cross-examining a sympathetic truth-telling um, person who you believe was truly victimized, a girl 
who was the victim of child sexual abuse, you know, or a woman or man, the victim of a brutal sexual assault. It's important to go back to your office and say to your colleagues, man, that was excruciating. That, you know, you can have a good cry. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and I, I believe that you should be clear-eyed about these cases because if you think it was excruciating in court, undoubtedly there are jurors who found it excruciating. If you think that somebody was a really powerful witness, then undoubtedly the jury or judge feels the same way. Um, and, you know, I don't know. In the end, you know, I think we're all human beings. We're all flawed. I'm certainly flawed. I'm also incredibly privileged. Every time I leave a jail or a prison and I hear the door clang behind me, I feel lucky that I was born to my parents and had my life and had my opportunities. And, you know, I do the work I do because I'm acutely aware that my clients weren't so lucky. That overwhelmingly they were born unfortunate and unfortunate things happen to them. I don't think anybody's born to do bad, to commit crime. You know, babies are innocent. I think inevitably things happen in people's lives. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in what makes people do bad things. Um, and I'm interested in finding people's humanity, no, no matter what they've done. Because in the end, I think I have more in common with my clients than not. I, I think all of us do. So I think that's an abiding criminal defense sensibility. And I think that's also a deeply feminist sensibility to understand that people are people and we are woundable, but we are also strong. And, you know, I think being curious and wanting the world to be a better place um, is also a deeply feminist wish. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was really interesting listening to you and hearing from you. So we really appreciate it. In today's Feminist News Roundup, we are sorry to report that a women's rights activist in Colombia has been attacked with acid. Lilia Patricia Cardoso is the director of women's rights NGO Plataforma Feminista Boyacense, which according to CNN, quote, works to end domestic abuse, gender violence and discrimination, including rescuing victims from the hands of abusers, end quote. Also in today's news roundup, the European Court of Human Rights has dismissed a claim by a transgender parent to register as a child's mother on the child's birth certificate. In making its decision, the court found that there was no violation of Article 8 respect to private life, and that, quote, the former gender and former forename of a transgender parent had to be indicated not only where the birth had taken place before the recognition of the parent's gender change had become final, but also where the child had been conceived or born after the gender reclassification, end quote. Meanwhile, in Canada, the Globe and Mail has reported that women are set to make up 50% of federally appointed judges. They report that currently women make up 47.97 of federally appointed judges and are just 19 short of, of achieving 50%. Finally, California has supported a bill that criminalized the distribution of pornography generated by artificial intelligence, where a person's likeness is used without consent. Under this bill, perpetrators can face up to a $1,000 fine or one year in prison. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.